0: and considering the moral magisterium of John Paul II. At least what I consider important components. First, we looked at some of the patrimony of the present pope, which in the moral area is very large, very large. Not only on specific titles, but also on some fundamental considerations that we call fundamental moral theology. All of those specifics we would find in capsule form, spelled out in the Catechism of the Catholic Church from 1992, and the encyclical Veritatis Splendor would take up some of those fundamental ones, which is what we looked at. In the first segment, we considered the sacred sources, the foundations, the biblical foundations of Christian moral teaching. In the second segment, we looked at the important notion of human freedom, hopefully at a correct understanding of human freedom, which does not find itself in contrast with the truth or with God's law or God's revelation, but in the fulfillment of the truth of God's revelation. We went rather quickly under what we call some considerations of ethical theory, but in this component I'd like to focus, if we could, on the important notion of conscience. This, too, comes up in the encyclical Veritatis Splendor, in Numbers 54 to 64, in Veritatis Splendor, which concerns itself with conscience and the truth. The parallel section in the Catechism of the Catholic Church is 1776, which should make it easy for Americans to remember, 1776 to 1802. And what we're looking at is Conscience. When we speak about human acts that proceed from the will with a knowledge of the end, and in their moral estimation, they have some bearing, some linkage, some relation to a norm or rule of morals. Now, externally, that norm is called law, whether it's the natural law in God's good creation, or divine positive law, part of God's revelation, and even human law, be that in the church, ecclesiastical law, which we call canon law, or in our society, just civil laws. Those are external to us. That's what we call the external norm of morality. But the internal norm of morality is what we call conscience. Conscience, it is the application of law. It is the application of truth, if you will. Everybody has a conscience. However, I suspect we live in a society which has not come to perfect agreement on precisely what that term really means. Conscience, I can give you examples. Many years ago, during kind of a student upset, there was an explosion at the University of Wisconsin in which a graduate student by the name of Robert Fastneck was working and he was killed, the father of three children. And the fellow who did that was Carlton Lewis Armstrong. And when he was arrested by, of all people, the Northwest Mounted Police, his father was quoted in the newspaper the next day as saying, I didn't raise my son to be a bum. If he did this, he did it because he has a conscience. Okay, there's one use of the word conscience. Lynette Fromm once made an attempt on the life of Gerald Ford, who was then the president. They seized her on the spot. Her friend, Sandra Goode, was quoted in the newspaper the next day as saying, This was a wake-up call. They are out there killing whales all the time. The reason she did this is because she has a conscience. So there's another use of the word conscience. Anthony Alvarado was once the city school chancellor in New York City, and he had a very unusual way of getting loans, which was not available to the rest of the human race. He had a way of getting rid of parking tickets that was not available to the rest of the human race. Uh, He also used city workers to fix up his private home, which as far as I know is not available to the rest of us either. And when all this blew up in the newspaper, Mr. Alvarado said, hey, look, um, I'm a Catholic. I I graduated from a Catholic college. Uh, There are different views in our society, but I have no problem with this in my conscience. Conscience, conscience, conscience. Okay, everyone has a conscience. Everyone has a conscience. But what is it precisely that we mean by this term in Catholic moral theology? Etymologically, if we break it down, conscience comes from two Latin words scientia, which is knowledge, cum, with or of oneself. Knowledge of oneself, okay? Now, what do we mean when we talk about conscience? Please keep in mind when we're talking about is something that's terribly practical, really practical. Just as we have to make practical decisions in every other area of life, so we make practical decisions on how we're going to live our life, on what we're going to do, on how we're going to live. For instance if someone were in business it would be helpful to know about interest rates and mortgages and whether the yen is going up and the dollar is going down and whether inflation is on the rise or on the decrease or, or what have you and you could have a lot of knowledge a lot of knowledge you could have an MBA in business from Harvard but you've got to take all that knowledge and make practical concrete business decisions right so you make a business decision, this store opens at 9 and closes at 5. You may be right, you may be wrong. I mean, if you have a business where everyone works at night, you may be open when everyone else is sleeping. But it's a practical decision. So in healthcare, you can know about good food, junk food, friendly cholesterol, unfriendly cholesterol, triglycerides, all of these things. You could have a PhD in biology from Stanford. You take the knowledge that you have, and you make a practical decision We give the kids Frankfurters for breakfast or not. It's a practical decision. Now, here too, in the area of conscience, wherever you get your knowledge, your sciencia, wherever that sciencia comes from, God's revelation, reading the Bible, what your parents taught you, experience you have gleaned from life, wherever the knowledge comes from, you take the knowledge you have and you make a concrete decision, a judgment. This is right. And will be done by me. This is wrong and will be avoided by me." That's the decision or the judgment of conscience that most concerns morality and it is a decision. It's a practical decision. I know, as you do, we can use the word conscience many ways. We can say that conscience blames, conscience stings, conscience assuages. We can use it in the sense of remembering and recollecting in a retrospective sense. In fact, we do, as Catholics, often talk about examining our conscience. That's looking back, looking over. That's a legitimate use. That's a legitimate understanding. However, the one that most concerns moral theology and moral decision-making is not retrospective looking back and remembering but one that is prospective and directive. Its technical name in moral theology is called antecedent conscience. Antecedent, that is, it comes before you act. It is the judgment you make that is directive of your prospective activity. It's important. Conscience is not really a feeling, because in a sense, You can't be wrong in your feelings. I mean, if you feel that blue is your favorite color, that's the way you feel. But you don't get upset when you meet someone who feels that red is their favorite color. But if I come into this room and I say, gee, I think the walls of this room are blue. Well, either I don't know what the word blue means, or perhaps I'm colored blind, or perhaps both. Because when I say think, I got to give reasons. I'm afraid that even the church in some of its expressions uses certain metaphors that are very popular. We often speak of conscience as being kind of a voice, as a voice within, as a little voice within my heart or something. Now that's a metaphor, and a metaphor of course has limits. Because if you go around telling your neighbors that you're hearing voices, ah, well, they may think you're very religious, they may think you're a little nutsy. It's just an expression. What we're talking about is something that's very practical. It's a decision. The decision or the judgment of conscience that we all make when we make decisions, when we decide how we are going to live. Now, because it is a decision, it has two components. It has an objective component, and it has a subjective component. Now, what do I mean when I say objective? Objective is that about which we make the judgment, what we make the judgment about. When you or I judge as right, what really, truly, objectively is right, we have made a correct judgment of conscience. When you judge as wrong, what really, truly, objectively is wrong, again, we have made a correct judgment of conscience. Alternatively, When you or I judge as wrong what's really right or judge as right what's really wrong, we have made a mistaken or erroneous judgment of conscience. And it's always possible. I mean, if it is a judgment, and it is, it's a practical decision, which it is, well, when we're making judgments, there are always two possibilities. We can judge it right, we can judge it wrong. All that means is that our judgment is either in tune with objective reality or not in tune with objective reality. Now, on the other hand, the subjective part, the subject, you, me, and the rest of the human race who make decisions, who make judgments, we could be certain, subjectively certain, of our conscience decisions, or doubtful. Subjectively certain or subjectively doubtful. Now, surely, if we are objectively correct, and subjectively certain. That's the best of all possible worlds, to be objectively correct and subjectively certain. Sometimes we might be objectively mistaken, but subjectively certain. And that sets up the two little rules, the little maxim that runs through Catholic moral teaching. You can always follow a certain conscience. You should not act on a doubtful one. You can always follow a certain conscience. You should not act on a doubtful one. What do you do with a doubt? The same thing you would do with any other practical decision in any other practical area of life. If we go back to business, if we go back to the health example, if you are uncertain, you are not sure, what do you do? You ask someone. You get more information. You find out. You talk to someone who's lived long enough and well enough to know what they're talking about. Well, it's the same thing with conscience decisions. If we say you can always act on a certain conscience, fine. You shouldn't act on a doubtful one. What do you do with the doubt? You try to resolve the doubt. There's a classic case in both civil and moral law. Two fellows go hunting. It's early in the morning. They get separated. It's somewhat misty. It's cloudy. It's unclear. Something is moving out there. I'm not sure. I'm in doubt. Whether that is my partner or a big brown Alaskan bear. Say you go hunting with your largest friends. Now, if something is really in doubt, what do you do? Shoot first and then go find out? No, 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 no. no. Both civil law and moral law would say, basically, that's homicidal intent. Basically, what you're saying is, I don't care whether that's a human being or a beast. Obviously, when we say you shouldn't act on a doubtful conscience, in a little matter, you make a little effort to clear up the doubt. In a big matter, like someone's life, You make a big effort to clear up the doubt. But let's not oversell things. When we say a certain, subjectively certain conscience, remember, all we're looking for is moral certitude. Because what we're talking about is moral theology. You should never expect or demand of a science a level of certainty that that science cannot produce. For instance, we are not trying to achieve what the philosophers call metaphysical certitude. Metaphysical certitude is the absence of any possible doubt, any possible doubt. The the truth be told, we don't have metaphysical certitude about that many things, except perhaps a change of being. I am metaphysically certain that halfway through uh, this little presentation, neither you or I will sprout wings and fly home. Why? Because that would be a change in being. That's a metaphysical impossibility. We're not concerned about that. Even a physical level of certitude. I mean, sometimes you may be the tenth person to go into the room and you could say, you know, is it possible, is it possible that this floor won't hold up ten people? Well, I suppose it's possible. But if you went around checking and weighing before you went in that room, life would kind of grind to a halt. And again, that's too strict a level of certitude. What we're looking for is moral certitude. What does that mean? Moral certitude means the absence of probable positive doubts. If you were approaching that same room and you saw the floor wavering, you'd have positive evidence that maybe it can't hold anymore. The same thing if you wanted to be super safe and say you're driving a car. The theory in this country is you can go on the greens and you should stop at the reds. Well... Is it possible someone's not going to observe the traffic laws? It's possible. Well, then to be safe, you better stop at both the reds and the greens. But then life becomes unlivable. It's it's too high a level of certitude. And what we mean by moral certitude when we say that someone, you can always act on a certain conscience, what we mean is that type of practical certitude that the prudent person uses in all other practical areas of life. Not metaphysical certitude, which is hardly available except for a few things. Not even physical certitude, which is demanded if you're building a building, but moral certitude, the absence of probable positive doubts, that's all. So you can always act on a certain conscience, you shouldn't act on a doubtful one. Up to this point, I believe, all religions agree on the basic mechanics. What is it that we mean when we talk about antecedent conscience, the mechanics. Now, some people go this far, and they go no further, and they conclude it by saying, ho, ho, follow your conscience and say no more. And that, unfortunately, is like a half a brick, which, of course, you can throw close to twice as far, because it's a little bit misleading. Besides saying you can always act on a certain conscience, but you shouldn't act on a doubtful one, at this point, We have to bring up the question about the formation of conscience. In fact, the formation of a correct conscience. The formation of a correct Catholic conscience. I make a claim, which I cannot immediately prove empirically. A, I claim to have a conscience. B, I claim to be a Catholic. Now, simply because I make those two claims does not guarantee automatically that everything that comes out of my mouth is all that Catholic, or for that matter, all that conscientious. Why? Uh, Perhaps I could be mistaken about what the Church teaches. Uh, Maybe I know it in general, but I can't apply it practically, accurately, or correctly in a given case. Or maybe I don't care. Or maybe I'm kind of into some kind of cafeteria Catholicism where I become selective. You know, certain passages in Scripture speak to me, and any that interfere with my lifestyle, all of a sudden I become deaf. That's a selective appraisal of Holy Scripture. And here, we have to be careful. True, and it is true, and it's traditional teaching. You can always act on a certain conscience, but you shouldn't act on a doubtful one. But there is a prior and primary responsibility to form and inform a correct conscience in the first place. And that is a personal effort, a lifetime effort, that no one else can do for you except you and me do for me. The correct formation of my Catholic conscience, that task applies to me. And Cardinal Newman, who was not exactly a humorist, Cardinal Newman made the point once that the aim of conscientious and even religious people religious people is sometimes not first how to please God, but first how to please themselves without displeasing God. And there's a subtle difference there because conscience conscience involves, we say, practical decisions, practical judgments, that technical word antecedent conscience, practical decisions, but remember it's a personal thing in the sense of this is good and should be done by me This is evil and should be avoided by me. If you're anything like me, I I mean, I've never had any trouble figuring out what's right and wrong for almost all the rest of the human race. Uh, But when it comes to me, then all of a sudden, well, my case is different, or, well, what seems uh, black and white all of a sudden becomes, for me, my favorite form of gray. And we can kid ourselves. There is such a thing as a dead conscience. A dead conscience. Now, this is quite extreme but I believe St. Paul describes it at the end of the first chapter of his epistle to the Romans. He says, it is the result and the penalty of wrongdoing. The result and the penalty of wrongdoing. It is possible to come to terms with a thoroughly corrupt lifestyle. I mean, if we took somebody who worked for the mafia and they were a hit man, or in non-sexist terms, they were a hit person or something, and they got $10,000 a job, very professional, it's not emotional, it's business. They leave no footprints, they leave no fingerprints, okay? This is just how they earn their living, $10,000 a hit. Do you think that that guy, the night before a hit, is dutifully reading the New Testament, or perhaps very of splendor? Not too likely. For all practical purposes, his conscience has become dead in that regard. Now again, it's extreme. He's responsible for its demise. But that's an extreme case. Less extreme, much more pervasive, is what I'd call a Swiss cheese conscience. Because a Swiss cheese conscience, like Swiss cheese, has strategic holes in it. Usually, what you're good at, you talk up. And what you're not good at, you do what I do. You change the subject and talk about something else. Morally, your life is always part of your argument. For whatever reason, Almighty God gave kids little antennae so that they can always ask the wrong question at the wrong time or when we don't choose to answer it, and it gets a little naggy. And that can happen with our conscience, too. But again, it's possible to fool the neighbors, it's possible to fool the community, it's possible to fool your spouse. Just be careful you do not fool yourself, because the prod of conscience only goes against the better self for as long, and as long as there's a better self to go against. Therefore, that effort to form and inform a correct conscience in the first place is very important. We said in the first component that we would try to pay attention to sacred sources, sacred sources, the sources, in this case, Holy Scripture. And I would admit that these distinctions about objectivity and subjectivity will not be found in Holy Scripture. The word conscience, in Greek, it's sinaitesis. It comes up 28 times in the singular, and but once in the plural in the New Testament. The word conscience never appears in the Old Testament. And all of the usages, almost all of the usages, are by St. Paul. And his understanding seemed to be basically this, that we are so constructed by Almighty God that were we to go beyond the bounds or confines of our given gifted nature, we would feel the sting of conscience. It's almost as if it's an alarm system about going beyond the bounds. St. Paul offered no distinctions about objectivity and subjectivity. It was not until much later in the Catholic tradition, basically very much in the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas, that these distinctions came. I think you'll find the Old Testament is notoriously unpsychological. And many of the Fathers of the Church just took a kind of basic approach. If you did something wrong, then that was wrongdoing and you were guilty of wrongdoing. They didn't make the distinctions that we have. So although the biblical use of this term is important to get our bearings in a sacred source, We must admit, in this case, there has been some positive development in theology, introducing some important distinctions about objectivity and subjectivity, and that what we're really talking about is an act of the practical intellect, an act of judging and of deciding. Again, I'm not precluding other possible uses, and there are many, many other possible uses of the term conscience, with which we're probably basically familiar. But this one about antecedent conscience, this judgment that is antecedent to our acting or our doing, that one is crucial. True, you can always act on a certain conscience. True, you shouldn't act on a doubtful one. But again, there's a prior and primary responsibility to form and inform a correct conscience in the first place. As much of an advantage that we have in our English language, with this noun, conscience. Because we separate conscience from consciousness. Consciousness is really kind of a psychological awareness type of thing. And in French, oddly, conscience it means the same. Both means both. In most Romance languages, it means both. Uh, Gewissen in German is much closer to what we mean. But this word, conscience, basically a practical judgment A practical decision of the practical intellect on how you're going to act, on how you're going to live. Very important. Very important. Okay, And its formation, also extremely important, because that's up to you personally. Now, just to say that, though, we then sometimes run into trouble, I think, when we get careless with our use of adjectives to qualify this. Sometimes people speak of sincere conscience or good conscience. Now, that's an important thing. Sincerity is obviously important, but let's presume, for our discussion, that everyone is sincere. Because if we lack sincerity, if we do not have sincerity, or we're not operating out of a sincere heart, that's really a different question. That's a question of bad faith. But if conscience is a decision, or a judgment, remember, it is possible to be sincerely correct, as it is possible to be sincerely mistaken. And there, I think, we have a tendency in our American society to say, well, as long as the person was sincere, as long as he or she meant well, then nothing more could be said. Now, something has to be said about the correct formation of a correct conscience. I mean, if you drove your car down to the library and you go in and you spend a little bit more time than you thought that you had anticipated and you come out, voila, no car, gone, parking space empty. But there's a little note scotch taped to the empty space. says, I liked your car better than mine. I'm following my conscience. Have a nice day. Wait a minute. Obviously, unless you stole that person's car to get there, which would be a different case, but say it's your car, you just can't say, well, I guess the fella is following his conscience, then uh, I just say goodbye to my car. His conscience is erroneous. That's an erroneous judgment on his part, for which he or she, whoever the thief was, is accountable. So the concept of forming and informing a correct conscience is very important. And I think we'll see the importance of it with two spectacular contributions, properly understood. One of them in the area of conscience is uh, I've always been impressed by St. Thomas More, particularly by that play Robert Bolt, The Man for All Seasons. It is sometimes described as a conscience play. Sometimes it is, and Robert Bolt is to be credited with a fine artistic expression and a really, really great piece of work. He went way out of his way to keep in the script even some of the words and the wording of St. Thomas More himself. But sometimes people refer to it as More basically had this adamantine sense of self, And in one of his responses to Cromwell, it says, a man's soul is his self. And that play, again, is beautifully written, accurate in detail, often uses Moore's own words. But we must understand that St. Thomas Moore was much more than merely a guardian of his own self. Because for St. Thomas Moore and St. Thomas Aquinas, human conscience was not an autonomous lawgiver, rather A man's conscience was his belief, true or false, true or false, about a law made by God. Therefore, to act against conscience was always wrong. That's why we say you can act on a certain conscience, we shouldn't act on a doubtful one. To act against conscience is always wrong because even if you're mistaken, you think you're right. And if you think this is the application of God's law or God's will and you act against that, that's always wrong. However, to act in accord with conscience is not always right. Is not always right. Why? Because we could have a mistaken or erroneous judgment, a mistaken or erroneous judgment. And about that, St. Thomas More was not shy, for instance, to condemn Luther or Tyndale. In fact, he wrote books against them. The only thing that More was really cramped in on was basically a mistaken conscience could excuse from wrongdoing if there was a division of opinion among the scholars and the saints. He refused to condemn other people, not because he thought their judgments were incorrect. When he thought they were incorrect, he said so. But if you were arguing something like the legitimacy of the act of succession, that was a disputable matter, so that didn't really bother him. Moore makes this statement to Cromwell, I am not bounden to change my conscience or conform it to the council of our realm, but against the general council of Christendom. Now by the general council of Christendom, he meant Catholicism. So if all the succession meant was who becomes king after the king after the queen after the king, that the British Parliament could argue forever. But when it was inserted in there that the king or the queen was the head of the Catholic Church in England, that he could not say yes to. So it wasn't just a matter of protecting his interior metaphysical handball court and his sense of self. It had to do with the truth, with the truth. And for that, he suffered widely. And that's one of the pope's points in Veritatis Splendor when he links conscience and the truth. Why? Conscience does not invent the truth. Conscience does not make the truth. Conscience detects or discovers the truth. After all, it is our human judgment. It is our human judgment. And when we discover and detect and find the truth and we make a correct judgment, after all, that's what truth is, correspondence of the mind with reality, that's a correct judgment. However, if we are mistaken, if we are mistaken, we may not be guilty of wrongdoing, but we should not confuse truth and error. Error does not become truth because I am mistaken about it. I would still have a mistaken conscience. And about that, St. Thomas More was pretty clear, and in that sense, he is a good example of conscience. Perhaps even the most eloquent, or at least what I take to be the most eloquent explanation of conscience and authority ever written in the English language, I believe was written by John Henry Cardinal Newman in that collection of certain difficulties felt by Anglicans in Catholic teaching in his famous letter to the Duke of Norfolk. After the First Vatican Council, when they defined papal infallibility, some people in Britain said that, well, English people, really English Catholics, really can't be good citizens because they have this higher loyalty to an infallible source that others are not bound to. And Newman, writing this letter to the Duke of Norfolk, I think came up with the most eloquent expression and, in a sense, the most prescient, prescient description of a problem a hundred years before it really rained upon us. Cardinal Newman wrote the following, The view of conscience that I know, Newman writes, is very different from what is ordinarily taken today. The view of conscience I know is founded on the doctrine that conscience is the voice of God the voice of God, whereas, he says, it is fashionable on all sides today to consider it one way or another, conscience as the voice of man. The rule or measure of duty, he writes, is not utility nor expedience nor the happiness of the greatest number nor state convenience nor fitness. Conscience is not some kind of long-sighted selfishness nor a desire to be consistent with oneself. It is, Cardinal Newman writes, a messenger from him who both in nature and grace speaks to us beyond the veil and teaches and rules us by his own representatives. He concludes, when men advocate the rights of conscience today, I remember this was written a hundred years ago, they in no sense mean the rights of the Creator or our duties to Him, but their right of thinking and speaking and writing and acting in accord with their own judgment or humor without any thought of God. They do not pretend to go by any moral rule or demand, but think that it's an Englishman's prerogative for each one to be the master of all things and to do as he pleases, taking no one's leave. He writes, conscience has its rights because it has its duties. But in this age, a large portion of the public, it is the very right and freedom of conscience to ignore the lawgiver, capital L, to ignore the judge, capital J and to be independent of any unseen obligations, to boast of being above all religions and a critic of them all. He says, this notion of conscience is a stranger to the 18 centuries that have preceded us and never heard of it and would never mistake conscience for it. The current notion, he says, of conscience is the right to my own self-will. The right to my own self-will. And Cardinal Newman... I think there is truly prescient because for many people, well, let's say for some people, they really think that whatever they sincerely decide is right because they have sincerely decided it. And therein lies a little more than a little confusion. We must grant the possibility, yes, you can act on a certain conscience, no, you shouldn't act on a doubtful one. It is possible to be objectively mistaken and subjectively certain, but that still will not make objective evil into objective good. There's a confusion there. And I think what Newman calls the right to my own self-will is what many people really mean when they talk about conscience, say in that slogan, I have a right to do what my conscience tells me to do precisely because my conscience tells me to do it. Let us be respectful of everyone's conscience. Let us not impose burdens on anyone's conscience, but let us not mistake and equate every subjective conviction with the truth, with the truth. Remember, our encyclical that we've been following in outline is very taught as splendor, the splendor of the truth. And conscience and the relation of conscience to the truth is critical. Again, conscience does not invent the truth, our conscience does not make the truth. At best, it detects, discovers, discerns the truth. And when we make judgments in accord with the truth, we've made correct decisions of conscience. When we are not in accord with the truth, whether that is the truth of God-made reality or God-revealed morality, our judgment is out of whack with reality. And therefore, The notion of forming and informing a conscience becomes very, very important and it's a lifelong task, I believe. It really is a lifelong task. If someone thinks that they had an adequate preparation for their confirmation and they're going to run on that for the rest of their life, whenever they made their I mean, that may have... uh, an adequate formation for a 12 year old is probably a 12 year old effort. But as someone takes on responsibilities in life, maybe professional responsibilities, maybe extra responsibilities, they have a duty, they have a positive duty to form and inform their conscience in that area of expertise where perhaps other people don't. But I mean, if you are a lawyer and you have a shingle out there to practice and you have a doctor and you have a license to practice, it is incumbent upon you in that profession to form and inform your conscience in that area and professionally be up to speed and up to grade. Otherwise, there would be inexcusable things. You can't just take your professional ignorance and say, well, I was sincere. I was sincere. I hope you are sincere. But you could still be sincerely mistaken just as you can be sincerely correct. So if we were to review, as the Catechism does, that judgment of conscience, technically antecedent, And I think you'll find it instructive that the Catechism also quotes a great deal here from Cardinal Newman. John Paul II, for whatever reason, is very much enamored of Cardinal Newman's writings, particularly in and on the area of conscience. And that letter from the Duke of Norfolk, sure enough, appears in the Catechism in 1778, the one that I just quoted from. And you'll find the regular distinctions there about basically the judgment of conscience and then, of course, the formation of conscience. And then it'll go into correct judgments and erroneous ones. And perhaps in the formation of conscience, we should revert back to the basic presupposition, that rich starting point that's at the beginning of Veritatis Splendor. Because I think in the preliminary remarks I was trying to address, as I believe the encyclical does. It's trying to teach the truth about the good. For many folks, morality is simply these bans, these prohibitions, these external things that are apart from us and seem to be imposed on us. Now, of course, conscience is the mechanism where we take the truth about the good and put that application into practice. And it is there in the formation of conscience that I think one of the real developments of veritatis splendor will come to the fore for us. And that's the part that I don't think has been sufficiently appreciated. There have been, in Catholic morality, at least two schools of thought that have shaped significantly our moral tradition. One of them is the tradition of the commandments which is much associated with the society of Jesus. The other is much associated with the Dominican order, St. Thomas Aquinas, looking at morality through the framework of the virtues. I'm not suggesting that these two are at odds. I'm just saying as two schools of thought, just as we have in theology, we sometimes have a Franciscan school of theology, we have a Dominican school of theology, We have a Jesuit school. As long as there's no contradiction, we welcome these different sources as complementary, because if there's no contradiction, they can complement. As often, you will find some of the Eastern Fathers of the Church have a different mystical way of looking at things, perhaps from the Western Fathers of the Church, who tended to be not only more practical, but a bit more pragmatic. Sometimes they manhandled mysteries, which was not ultimately pragmatic. But along the way, the framework of the commandments is probably the moral outlook most of us grew up with. Someone my age or older who first learned a little bit about our religion from the Baltimore Catechism, the outline in that catechism was the framework of the commandments. Namely, in fact, that's what they're called, the three C's, the creed, the code, and the cult. The creed, the 12 articles of the creed, The code, the Ten Commandments, and the chief precepts of the Church, and the cult, the seven sacraments. And I must say, even as an adult, even after doing an awful lot of theology, sometimes in a public question-and-answer session, whenever someone asks me a question, some little bell goes off in the back of my head, "Hmm, what commandment is that attached to, or what commandment is that against? That's the way I was wired. And they wired me as a youngster, and it has not entirely gone away. My point would be, this is not the only way to view morality. If you can bear it, let me ask two questions and ask whether these are the same. Is there a difference between the question, is this a sin, and the question, what is the right thing to do? Is X a sin? I don't care what X is. X could be murder, X could be in vitro fertilization. It's not the merits of the particular application that concerns me, it's the question. Is X a sin? What is the right thing to do? Because for some folks, morality really is a matter of limits. It's the question of, how far can I go before I fall off? Which is what they mean sometimes by, what's a mortal sin? How far can I go before I'm out of bounds? It's as if baseball. You know, How far can I go before I fall off? Versus the question, what is the right thing to do? Now. I think this is why people have uh, problems and some have hesitations about confession being routine. Because some might say, well, you know, it's always the same laundry list. Well, if the question is about what's wrong, what's wrong is wrong. It's going to stay wrong. And if we never get back to the question about virtue, we are impoverishing our own moral tradition. And that's why I say it's not the only way to look at things. This arrangement, the division, the modern division we have within theology is really the outgrowth of the Jesuit Ratio Studiorum, which was implemented around the year 1601. And it became very important. Even in non-Catholic countries, they may have hated the Jesuits, but they loved their education. And the way they divided things up was there was a professor for sacred scripture, there was a professor for dogmatic theology, and then they brought in what they called a professor of cases of conscience to teach those people in the seminaries, which were newly founded then, to hear confessions and do things like that, and moral theology as it was understood then was basically largely canon law, largely matters of obligations, in which priests had to be trained, but it was kind of separated from the larger corpus of sacred theology. In fact, if that's 1601, go back to St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas died in the year 1274, which is considerably before 1601. If you were to go to his master work, namely the Summa Theologiae, and look up the word moral theology, you won't find it. You won't find it. Because those modern divisions, scripture, a subject by itself, dogmatic theology, moral theology, subjects, disciplines by themselves, he didn't look at it that way. He called it Sacra Doctrina, sacred doctrine. So it's almost like John 14:6, when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. The way has to do about Christian ways and the paths, how to live. The truth, the truth about God and the truth about us, we tend to call doctrines. And the life, sacramental life, but participation in his life, they would all be seen as one and complementary. And St. Thomas, when he does it in his Summa, he doesn't have a specific division for what we would call moral theology. The second part of the Summa does concern moral teaching because it's divided into two parts. The first part of the second part is fundamental, what we call purpose in life, human freedom, human acts, things that we looked before, norm of morality, external law, internal conscience, sin and virtue. He takes up all of those integrated with doctrinal things. But in the second part of the second part, it's all in the framework of the virtues. It's all in the framework of the virtues. And he inevitably takes each virtue, first the theological, faith, hope, and charity, then prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, the cardinal virtues on which they all hinged. all the others hinge, human virtues. He always defines the virtue positively, how do you put it into fulfillment? Negatively, what's opposed to it, or what he calls a vice. I am not saying that these two schools, traditional schools, are doing contradictory things. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that they had a different approach to presenting the moral teaching of the church. There's no question that the emphasis on the commandments has a certain clarity and a needed precision where precision is needed. That it got removed somewhat from the sacred sources, that the council complained about this absence, that it became almost like courtroom procedure, that some Parts of that school got very much involved in casuistry. There's even examples of casuistry in the New Testament, but we should not confuse what that is. Casuistry is used to help solve difficult cases. It was never meant to be a way of life, but it very much gets stuck in that question of how far can I go before I fall off, or a minimal understanding of morality. What's the least I can do and stay in the state of grace? What's the least I can do? What is the minimum, the absolute minimum? How close can I get to the heated wall without getting burned or singed by the wall? It's an outlook. It wasn't meant as a way of life, but sometimes it generated that minimalist interpretation. What happened, basically, is the consideration of the virtues kind of fell out of the picture or it got shifted off to what they called ascetical theology, or spiritual theology, as if that had to do with other subjects that were specialties or subspecialties of something else. Very unfortunate, very tragic happening. If you go back to the framework of the virtues, define the virtue you're talking about, find positive ways to fulfill it, negatively what's opposed to it. Again, not to be misunderstood, they're teaching the same doctrine. But I think spiritually, and theologically, but spiritually, the Dominican tradition of teaching within the virtues is more fruitful. Why? Because it's only in a doctrine and a morality of the virtues that I think people make spiritual progress. It's possible to avoid what's grossly wrong and not make much progress. It's possible not to rob a bank today, not to blow up the World Trade Center today, not to uh, fund an abortion clinic today. I can go through five things I did not do and end up kind of standing still. And that's what I think is a problem when we forget about the virtues. Whereas, when we find some positive way to put a virtue into practice, that's how we actually grow. If I'm not mistaken, this is really the genius of AA. AA says, look, someone has to say realistically, honestly, I got a problem and I need help. They acknowledge a power higher than themselves. And from that point on, all they talk about is sobriety, the virtue of sobriety, how to stay sober, keep sober, go to meetings, make phone calls, make progress in that virtue. They don't waste any time arguing about whether drunkenness is arguable. you are not going to get anywhere that way, but they have to practice the virtue. Now, with any other thing, I think that's what we have to do. If we have a personal problem, a little obstacle, go back to Holy Scripture, figure out that Christian virtue, find positive ways to put that into practice. That's how we grow, that's how we change. We don't necessarily grow by just avoiding what's wrong. We grow, both in extension and comprehension, by living out a positive life of virtue. And St. Thomas's moral theology has sometimes been described as just that, a teleology of virtue. The whole thing is geared to virtue. Now fortunately, I think, In the new Catechism of the Catholic Church, we say the third part, so the first is what the Church believes, then what the Church celebrates, but in how the Church lives, that moral part, part three, is divided into the fundamentals and then the specifics. It is true, they use the framework of the Ten Commandments, but if you read the Catechism carefully, the treatment of each one of the commandments is preceded by a short treatment of the virtue which is at stake the virtue which is at stake. So I think, in effect, what happened with the New Catechism is these two traditions have been brought into sync, have been brought into unity in this presentation, and pastorally, spiritually, I think that's an important plus. That's why we go back to the Pope's question in the beginning of Veritatis Splenda, because really the question is about what is the truth about the good? It's not just avoiding error. It's not just avoiding evil. It's living the truth, living the truth. And it's not always or only just book knowledge. The Holy Father mentions in his encyclical that there's a connatural form of knowledge, connatural. And I think we find that in John 3:21, where Jesus teaches in that dialogue with Nicodemus, he who does the truth comes to the light. He who does the truth comes to the light. By living the truth, you come to a certain life. I'm sure you will find in life people who are, in the eyes of the world, not very sophisticated. They don't quote footnotes, they don't quote canons, they don't quote a lot of things. But because of how they have lived, because of putting virtue into practice, they have a clarity to their vision and a clarity to their moral living. They have lived the truth, which has brought them to the light. Uh, The opposite follows in the next few verses when it says when you do evil you avoid the light, you avoid it like the plague, which we know is true. You can see that with little kids. Usually they love to be the center of attention until you catch them red-handed doing something they know and you know they're not supposed to be doing, then they disappear. But that connatural thing is then very important in the correct formation of conscience. So instead of just figuring out what's wrong, And what's wrong is wrong, we should admit it. The other important, really tremendously important function in the correct formation of a Catholic conscience is to form and inform our conscience in the doctrine and the framework of the Christian virtues. I cannot be so pessimistic that I would lead myself to believe that all of a sudden in the 20th century, no one can live like a Christian anymore. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. And even if the atmosphere is morally polluted, all the more reason for us to form and inform a correct conscience in the first place, so that, in fact, we too can try to live, live the truth. Because if you do live the truth, as the encyclical teaches, as the Gospel teaches, as the whole moral magisterium of John Paul II teaches, if you live the truth, you will indeed come to the light.